Now, hear God's holy word from 2 Samuel chapter 13, continuing our study in 2 Samuel. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. Now Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word in all of its glory, in all of the ways that you have instructed us in the history of your people, in the history of your mighty acts in the earth. And Father, we especially give you thanks that you haven't left anything out that we need to know for our sanctification. So even in difficult and gut-wrenching stories as uh, like the one that we're going to read today, we give you praise for your mercy and we ask you for your wisdom by your Holy Spirit, guide us through this text so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. Harry Chapin, many of you know that name. Harry Chapin was a folk singer in the 1970s, a brilliant songwriter. He has a great catalog of music, but he's most well known for his performance of Cats in the Cradle, which he did not write. He did not write that song. His wife, Sandy, wrote Cats in the Cradle based on her observations about the relationships between fathers and sons. You, you all know the song, right? I'm sure everybody over the age of probably 30, maybe 25, maybe has heard the song Cats in the Cradle. It's about a father who's too busy to spend time with his young son, and he always makes these vague promises about spending time with his boy, Sometime, you know, one day, you know, we'll have a good time, son. You know, we'll have a good time then, but, but not today, not today. And despite the father's absence and despite the fact that the father's always running on to the next thing, his son still adores him. The son still admires his father and this shapes the son's future behavior so that when the son is grown, and the father has all of this free time and he wants to spend time with his son, the son then deflects and delays and responds, you know, we'll get together then, dad. You know, we'll have a good time then. The roles have been reversed and the father sees how much like himself his son has really become. Now, Harry Chapin had a small son when his wife wrote this song and when he started performing it. And before he would sing it, often before he would perform this song in concert, he would say, frankly, this song scares me to death. It's almost like he was singing it, but I don't, I don't like it. I don't like this at all. And I can't, I honestly, I can't listen to that song all the way through. If it comes on the radio, it's just like staring right into the sun for me. It's so painful when I think about my relationship to my own father, and I think about the fears that I have with my relationship to my own son, uh, it's, it's terrifying. But it's a brilliant window into the re relationships between fathers and sons. Like father, like son is not just a cliche. It's a reality. Our fathers shape us in more ways than we're able to realize. And the irony of the father-son relationship is this, that the more the son tries not to be like his father, the more he ends up like his father, right? The, the more he tries to push his dad away, 
like it or not, he becomes like his father. And so what that means for all of us, men and women, is that we have to stop judging ourselves against the faithfulness of our parents, and especially men. We, we can't judge ourselves against the faithfulness of our fathers, thinking that if we're just somehow one degree more faithful, one degree more holy, that, that we have somehow achieved something and we're not like, we're not like them. No, uh, our, our fathers are not our benchmark right? The Lord Jesus is our standard of holiness. Our heavenly father is our standard of real fatherhood. And so we practice forgiveness with our earthly fathers and we pray that we would be delivered from bitterness when it comes to our own fathers. We give thanks for our heavenly fathers, but then we look at, uh, we, we give thanks for our earthly fathers and we give thanks for our heavenly father as our standard of real fatherhood. Well, the reason I bring this up is in 2 Samuel chapter 13, all of these father-son dynamics and all of these struggles play out in the house of David. The prophet Nathan, in the very last chapter that we studied, the prophet Nathan told David, the sword will never depart from your house. And then in the very next chapter, this prophecy begins to work itself out in David's sons who repeat, and not only repeat, but amplify the sins of their father. Remember, the, the theme of this section of David's history is the question of who will be the, the son of the promise? Who will be the next son? Who will be the heir uh, of David's uh, kingdom and of this promise that David received from God that, that a son of his will never depart from the, from the throne? There will be a son of his on the throne forever. So, so who will be the heir of all God's promises? Will it be Amnon? Will it be Absalom? Will it be Adonijah? Will it be Solomon? David sowed the seeds of discord in his own family in his sin with Bathsheba and with the murder of Uriah. But the real fissures, the real cracks in the pavement started all the way back before he ever became king. Before, before David was anointed king, his polygamy established the battlefield for his sons to compete with each other and to fight over the crown. In a king's house, there's always the question, who is going to be the next king? Who's going to be the successor? Ordinarily, it's the firstborn. But if you've been foolish and you've you've now got several wives and several concubines, then, and, and these wives and concubines all receive different levels of affection and attention, now you have a question. It's not just, oh, it's going to be the firstborn. The question is, which firstborn? The firstborn of which wife? So this chapter before us today involves the children of one of his wives, uh, two children, Absalom and his young unmarried sister Tamar, and then one son from a different mother, Amnon, as well as one of David's nephews, Jonadab. Amnon falls in love with his half-sister, Tamar, so in love that he's sick, and he knows that it's improper to pursue his sister, his half-sister, romantically. He knows that that's not... A allowed. That's prohibited in every single way, in every single dimension. You don't pursue your half-sister romantically. Yet, Jonadab, his cousin, David's brother's son, Jonadab, tempts Amnon to pursue her. So we have a Garden of Eden scene here. And in the story, Jonadab 
who's described as a crafty man, he's in the role of the serpent. Also, as this plays out, watch how big a role that food plays in this story, how, how food plays a significant role in the temptation. Let's pick up in verse 5. So Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar saying, now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, have everyone go out for me. And they all went out for him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. So in this, in this Garden of Eden scene, Jonadab is the serpent. Tamar is the forbidden fruit. Amnon is being tempted, but he's really in the role of, of Eve here. And the Adam of the story is David who doesn't protect the garden, who has a greater responsibility here. See, each time the story of the fall is retold throughout the scriptures, and it's retold many times, all the dynamics are there, but there are significant changes. And, and we get the story played out in different ways to see that the uh, hearts of humans are always depraved, and we're always finding new ways to uh, fall and rebel against God's law. After this fall, even, there's going to be an exile, just as there was as Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. So there is an exile in this story. There is a brother-brother conflict that ends in the murder of a brother, just like Cain and Abel. So with, with laying the, the, the Garden of Eden uh, account over this, then, then we can see that, uh, that the sin here and the fault here really originates with David. If, if we're just reading this on the surface and we're not paying attention to the connections here, we might just assume, well, this is all about Amnon and Absalom and their sin. But, but if we think about this in garden terms and ask, who is the Adam? Who's playing the role of Adam here? Well, it's really David. David stands by and permits all of this nonsense and, and nightmarish stuff to go on. This story is about Adam's passivity as a father, his failure to take hold of things when he is in charge of taking hold of things here. You see, there are a lot of number of things in the world that we can't control. There are things in the world that we can't do anything about. We can't change. They're outside of our control and we don't have any authority over those things. But for the things we have been granted authority over, God expects us to wield that authority to take hold of the responsibility that God has given us. David's responsibility here is very simple. He is to restrain the sin of his children, to see to it that sin is an extremely unpleasant avenue to follow, to show them that sin has no reward, sin has no blessing. 
You don't get a pass when you sin and sin high-handedly defying God and rebelling against him. You see, David can't make his children not sin, right? You can't make your children not sin. They will always find new ways to rebel and new ways to sin. At a certain level, their sin is between them and God, right? God doesn't expect you to make them not sin. What he does require of us, though, is that we restrain their sin, guard them from temptation as far as we are able, and correct their sin, to rebuke it, to make it painful, to stamp out those little weeds of sin so that they don't grow into big trees bearing big, ugly, nasty fruits of sin. And when they become adults and we lose some of the influence that we have over them, we, we don't stop that entirely. We still stand with Jesus, stand with God's law against their sin. So we'll see David here failing to do everything that I just said. We see David failing to take an active role. He's passive. He's lacking discernment. Amnon is in love with his sister. Cousin Jonadab tempts him to pretend to be sick and hatch a plot to lure her in. Amnon acts like the only thing that's going to make him feel better is if his lovely sister bakes him a cake. Come bake me some cakes and feed me out of your hand. Nobody else can cook like Tamar. That's the only thing that'll make me well. Now, that's not at all mature behavior for a grown man to say that he's only going to eat what one particular member of the family makes for him. Um, most mothers would, would have no patience for a request like that. Would any of your, would any of your moms, uh, you moms say, oh yeah, that's completely reasonable. You're, you're, you're only going to eat what one family member makes for you. No, we're not going to put up with that. That is nonsense. But David is being super naive here and he's setting up his daughter to be taken advantage of because he, you know, he's just permissive with his son and what, this is what his son wants and this is what he's going to give his son. He is indulging his son rather than saying, that's ridiculous. That's really stupid, Amnon. Uh, get up off your bed, walk around, walk it off. You may feel better in a couple days. That's what he should have said. But he sets up his daughter with, because he doesn't stamp out that little, little weed of, of stupidity, which is all that is there, right? So uh, Tamar obeys her father she makes cakes for her half-brother Amnon, and then he's still, he's laying there acting like he's too ill to eat the cakes. I can't even lift up my head, and I don't want to eat these cakes with all these people around. Let me, let me just go back to my bedroom, and you can, you can feed me there. And he calls her back to his bedroom. Now, Amnon is showing us the question. What's the question here? The question is, who is going to be the king to inherit all the promises that God has given David? Well, is it going to be Amnon? Oh, I hope not. Boy, I hope it's not Amnon. What is he? Well, he's, he's uh, not only harboring incestuous lust, but he's taking whatever he wants, and his daddy is letting him take whatever he wants. He's a, he's a guy who seizes things. This is the guy that Samuel warned us about. What did Samuel say? If you get a king like the nations, he's going to seize your sons. He's going to seize your daughters. Well, now Amnon is going to seize Tamar. He seizes her in verse 11, and then he forces her. Listen to this, verse 11. 
Uh, now, when she had brought them to him, the cakes to him to eat, he took hold of her. He seized her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, no, my brother, do not force me for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this graceful thing, this disgraceful thing. And, and I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than her, he forced her and lay with her. Tamar is a faithful young woman, and she knows God's law. And she knows that this would be disgraceful, and it would be shameful, and it would be uh, outright rebellion against God. In Leviticus 18 through 20, we have a list of forbidden relationships where incest is explicitly forbidden, and it's defined so as to include half-brothers and half-sisters. There's no loophole that says, well, she's my half-sister. We might think that back to Abraham and say, well, wasn't Sarah uh, Abraham's half-sister? Well, yeah, but they weren't under uh, Mosaic law. Remember, they came out of raw paganism. Abraham and Sarah came out of, uh, uh, you know, probably were either the sons and daughters of a, a pagan priest or, uh, you know, Tara very might as well, uh, might have been a, a pagan priest. Abraham and Sarah come out of it, but they weren't under the Mosaic law. We are under the Mosaic law at this period in history, and this is expressly forbidden. If uh, in, in Leviticus 20, it says, if a man takes his sister, his father's daughter or his mother's daughter and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a wicked thing and they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He shall bear his guilt. So Tamar knows this and she said, I will never be able to live down my shame and you'll be like one of the fools in Israel. She's quoting this here. You will be cut off. And so Tamar suggests this. She says, here, let's go to the king. If we're going to do this, let's at least get his blessing and get married. Now that's also forbidden. That's, that's also forbidden. But perhaps here she's trying to stall, buy some time in hopes, holding out hope that if they go to the king, he's just going to forbid this and then she will be spared. But he's not listening to a word she says. He forces himself on her and he lays with her. Verse 15. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the, than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. So she said to him, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended him, and he said, Here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. After getting uh, through the exhilaration of, of obtaining the thing that he wanted so badly, he immediately feels worthless and he feels guilty. Amnon has no satisfaction in the thing that he's done. So he transfers all of that guilt to her and he kicks her out. He hates her as much as he formerly loved her. In fact, he hates her more than he loved her. And we've got to put quotes around that word love, right? 1 Corinthians 13 says, love never fails, right? So if it failed, if his love failed, then it wasn't, then it wasn't love, was it? So he didn't really love her, but he, he abuses her. He violates and shames her. She hasn't sinned against him. So how twisted and confusing is this that he now hates her more than he was ever infatuated with her? 
She is the one who's violated. She's the one who who shamed. He sinned against her, and now he hates her. What weird psychology is at play here? Well, sometimes when you dig into why people hate other people, you find that the reason that they hate the other person so much is they have sinned against them. Person A hates person B because person A has sinned against them. And they are consumed with guilt that they can't deal with and they can't get over. So they hate the person that they have sinned against. They have wronged them as much as they've been wronged themselves. And, and now they, they hate the person that they've done wrong. See, and, and it's this psychology that we, we despise the things we abuse. See, we have abused them and now we despise them. This is the way it works. And, and we abuse them to begin with because we didn't love them. We abuse them to begin with because we despise them. Now, a, a, another dimension to this is that we tend to be thankful for, um, in, in, in uh, righteous living, and as Christians, we tend to be thankful for the things that God has given us. If God gives us a thing, we, we are likely to be thankful for it as as Christians, but we hate the things we take. If you have to connive and steal and conspire, if you have to cheat to get a thing, that thing is not going to bring you any pleasure at all. It's going to be a constant reminder of your guilt. You're going to keep on hating it and you're going to end up despising it. Well, that's all at play here. Amnon has forced his sister into this physical relationship and now he feels really guilty about it. And so he hates her and he kicks her out. Now, Tamar is distraught, to say the least. Amnon's rejection compounds her shame and she believes that she's damaged and she is never going to have a normal life. Listen to what she does, verse 18. Now, she had on a robe of many colors, for for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel, and his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. She put ashes on her head saying, I'm, I'm under the dirt. I'm, I'm, I'm symbolically dead. I might as well be dead here. She tore her robe, which says, I am torn. She has on this robe of many colors. And this got translated Uh, back in the King James Version as robe of many colors. Remember, Joseph had a robe of many colors. It it probably a closer translation would be a a robe with long sleeves or a robe with many fringes. Might be a better translation, but for the purpose, because we all know the vernacular robe of many colors and we connect that with Joseph, it's fine to understand that this this is an official garment like Joseph had. Joseph received this official garment because God had elevated Joseph over his brothers. And to recognize this, uh, he was given this, this robe to identify his office as, as a, a, an official, as a leader, as a magistrate in his family. Joseph's authority was recognized with this robe. And now, incidentally, David has done the same thing with his daughters. He has given his daughters, his princesses, he has given them some form of authority and responsibility and has given them a robe uh, to identify that. Just like, you know, we give uh, cops uniforms and we give judges robes. Why? It's because we, we're not so much thinking about the, uh, the, the man and the individual, but we see the uniform and we understand that there is authority there. 
In the gospel reading this morning, John read where Jesus rebuked the Pharisees who loved long robes. Well, see, they just wanted the honor and they just wanted the authority without, they, but they weren't qualified and they misused and abused their authority. But that doesn't mean that all authority is automatically abused or that all uniforms are therefore uh, forbidden. So David gave to his uh, daughters these uniforms and now she, she tears it. Now, this, this, the Holy Spirit didn't have to record this detail for us about her robe, but we have it. And why do we have this detail about her robe of many colors or, or many fringes? Apparently, the Holy Spirit records this for us so that we can think back to Joseph's situation. And certainly everyone around her should have remembered Joseph as well. Amnon said to Tamar the very same thing that uh, Potiphar's wife said to Joseph, the very same phrase, come lie with me, the very same thing. And just as Joseph refused, so did Tamar refuse. The difference is that Joseph is able to get away, though his robe is torn in the process. Joseph is able to get away. Tamar, because she's a young woman and her adult brother is forcing her, Tamar is overpowered by Amnon. But now that this evil is done to her, like Joseph, like she has been wronged by her brother, just as Joseph was wronged by his brother, just as she has been cast out by her brother, just as Joseph was cast out by his brother, everyone around her, and she needs to remember how Joseph overcame his rage, and under God's providence, Joseph didn't take revenge. Joseph turned things around, and in the end, Joseph actually ends up blessing his brothers, like Jesus did. Jesus was cast out by his brothers, right? Jesus was, was killed by his brothers. And when they see Jesus again, uh, he's, not only is he resurrected, not only do, do they see him alive, but he's a king. Just as when Joseph's brothers finally found him, they think he's dead, but he's alive. Oh, and he's a king. The same, same thing is going on here. So the point is, and the point ought to be obvious to anybody who's paying attention, that even though she feels like her life is over, she's, she's another Joseph and her life is not over. Like Joseph, there is redemption and there is reconciliation to be had here. The problem is that she's surrounded by fools who are not going to let this happen. Absalom and David are going to need to, to act justly, recalling Joseph's story. Amnon is going to need to be confronted the way that David was confronted by Nathan. And the law makes provisions for what happens next. So the question that we're presented with is, are we going to follow God's law? Are we going to do what he says? Or are we going to ignore it and we're going to go our own way, go the way of revenge and destruction? Well, knowing the way things work out, Knowing the way that Nathan said the sword is never going to depart from the house of David, you know where this is headed. Verse 20. <clears throat> and Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. David gets very angry, but that's all he got. He just got angry because he doesn't do anything about it. Passive men get real angry about situations and they think that that's all that's required of them, just to get really mad and fuss and fume and let everybody know how upset they are, but don't actually do anything about it. David gets real mad but he doesn't take action. 
And this leaves his son Absalom exposed. It leaves his daughter exposed, but it leaves Absalom exposed, thinking, Dad, if you won't take this to heart, I will. So his daughter, David's daughter, is feeling desolate and wasted. She's thinking, now no husband will ever want me. No man will ever, will ever want me now. Now, now there could have been, there could have been, and this could have all been worked out, but things were done right, so she's not sure how it's going to go. There's no rest in this situation. What should have happened? Well, let's think back to God's law. What should have happened at this point? David had a few options. If he would have taken charge here, there are a few things he could have done. Because it was incest, Amnon ought to have at least been exiled from God's people. He should have been cast out. He should have been excommunicated. But because it was rape, he could also have been executed. He, he ought to have been executed if, if it were rape. If Tamar, however, thought it were better to marry him, if she wanted to just kind of clean up this mess, if she still had some kind of sisterly affection for her brother and felt sorry for him, if, if they just treated this like a case of premarital fornication, and if she wanted to be married, and if David consented to this, uh, Amnon could pay 50 shekels to David and marry her if, if they consented to this. Or in the case of premarital fornication where the daughter or the father refuses the marriage, he still has to pay 50 shekels and he has to get lost. That, that's the other option. He just gets lost or he's cast out. Now, the 50 shekels here, and this comes into play, that would be between five and seven years salary for a working man. And the point of this payment, the point of this dowry is this, is if they are married, the, the father holds on to this money for his daughter in the, in the case that he changes his mind, he runs off and he abandons her. And then now he's got some wealth for his daughter. And if they aren't married, that's considerable wealth for her to eventually carry into marriage to another man and sets her up well for recovery and for putting her life back together. So the, the 50 shekels is both punitive, but it's also compensatory for the woman. God's law works this out. Deuteronomy 22, Exodus 22, if you wanna study it later, it, these are the options open to David. Depending on how David read the situation, depending on how merciful Tamar wanted to be and how merciful David wanted to be, there were a host of options. David could hold court. He could call in his sons. Absalom would be Tamar's representative and, and, and advocate. And then Amnon would come in. David would hear the testimony. He would work this out publicly, he would publicly acknowledge Amnon's sin. He would publicly restore Tamar's honor. Instead, what David does is he just gets angry, he just gets mad. He just fusses and fumes and cusses about it for a little while. Oh, dad's angry. Dad's real mad. Okay. What's he going to do about it? Nothing. Nothing. That's what he's going to do about it. And his abdication is his endorsement of Amnon's sin. He leaves now Absalom open to plot and revenge against his brother. David's passivity is compliance with what happens next. Verse 23. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom has sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, kindly note, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go. 
and he blessed him. Well, there are all these parties associated in the Bible with the harvest, and there's also big feasts associated with sheep shearing festivals in the Bible. When you harvest the wool from the sheep after a long winter, you, you harvest the wool, and there are several of these sheep shearing festivals in Scripture, significant ones. So you know they're a big cultural event. Absalom says to his dad, come, come along, join us at the, at the festival. And David says, no, 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 I don't want to be a burden to you. Go, go have a good time. Uh, maybe Absalom hopes that his dad will go along to be a witness uh, of what uh, is about to happen. Uh, but either way, David doesn't want to go. Absalom goes, and he is, he's plotting his revenge. It's been two years. We've, two years have gone by. It's now the third year, the year of judgment. It's the year of something to happen. And maybe everybody thinks that Absalom forgot, but Absalom hasn't forgot. Tamar certainly hasn't forgotten, and Amnon maybe thinks he's in the clear. Verse 26, then Absalom said, well, if not, and he says this to his father, David, he says, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? I didn't, I didn't think you guys liked each other, but Absalom urged him. So he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Uh, this demonstrates that David doesn't understand. He doesn't know what's up. He doesn't suspect that anything's up because David thought he was in the clear 10 months after he murdered Uriah. He thought, well, this, you know, stuff just kind of goes away, right? And so it's been two years since this unpleasantness with Amnon, so maybe everybody moved on, but that's not the case at all. Verse 28, so Absalom, now Absalom had commanded his servants saying, watch now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each one got on his mule and fled. Absalom uses his subordinates to kill Amnon, just like David did with Uriah. And when Amnon is struck down, the other king's sons, the other princes jump on mules. And this is really interesting. Why are they jumping on mules? Remember back all the way through this uh, uh, era of the kings so far, and even back to the judges, they rode uh, donkeys, right? Why are they riding donkeys? Well, God forbids the king from multiplying horses. But now we have all the princes have mules, you know, like Corvettes in the ancient world, right? They jump on their Corvettes and they flee uh, their Mustangs. Uh, but now they have these mules. Well, what's a mule? Well, a mule is a cross between a horse and a donkey. Where do these come from? Leviticus 19 says you can't breed different types of animals together. Now, again, you and I are not under the Mosaic law, so we can have mules. We can have ligers. We can mix li lions and tigers. We can do that. But under the Mosaic law, you couldn't. And this just shows they're one step. They're not riding donkeys anymore. Well, they don't have horses but they have mules. And by the time we get to Solomon, Solomon is going to have 40,000 stalls for his horses. Well, it's just incremental unfaithfulness. We don't jump all the way over to horses. We got mules in between and we've, we have this incremental unfaithfulness. Real interesting. Well, it might seem that Absalom is only doing what everybody else failed to do. Absalom takes matters into his own hands. He stands up for justice and he does what needs to be done, right? Amnon needed killing. And I'm not denying that. Amnon needed killing. He did. But it wasn't Absalom's authority to do so. Absalom exceeded his jurisdiction because David didn't act. Verse 30. And it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons and not one of them is left. 
So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, as he does what Tamar did. And all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king take this thing heart to heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Rumors got to David before the truth did, and the rumor was that Absalom rose up and killed all the princes. And now up pops Jonadab again, the crafty man, the serpent. He was Amnon's friend, but now he's currying favor with David, ingratiating himself, shifting allegiance, comforting David. He says, all your sons aren't dead. Don't cry. It's only, it's only Amnon. Don't take this thing to heart. Don't worry about that. Well, that's been the problem all along. David hasn't really taken any of this to heart. You don't have to tell him not to take this to heart because he's not going to. If David had taken this to heart two years ago, we wouldn't be here now. Verse 34. Then Absalom fled, and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming, as your servant said, so it is. I was right. Look, you can trust me. I tell you the truth. So it was as soon as he had finished speaking that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. Absalom was the son of David's wife, Maaka. Maaka was the daughter of the king of Geshur. And so when Absalom flees, when he leaves town, he goes and stays with his, with his grandparents. He goes to his mama's people. And he hides out there and he waits for everything to blow over. Because that's what happens, right? Everything just blows over. Nothing ever gets dealt with. David longs to go to Absalom, but he doesn't, perhaps because that would create an uncomfortable diplomatic situation. And David ends up once again, not resolving things here. And Tamar is left without any justice. She's left without any protection in all of this. Tamar is left twisting in the wind. There's no rest yet. And again, we come, because I'm just following these chapter divisions here, we come to a place of unrest. We have to end today on this place of, of kind of being hanging there and not really having any resolution. This is not a happy ending. So David's sins, we see in, uh, I'm sorry, David's sons end up not only repeating their father's sins, but they intensify their father's sins. David, remember, used his position of strength and authority to force himself on a woman who was not his wife. Amnon used his position and his strength to force himself on his sister. You listen to David's sin and you go, ugh. You listen to Amnon's sin and you go, ugh, ugh. Amnon uh, I'm sorry, David uses his army to arrange the death of his neighbor in battle. Ugh. Absalom uses his servants to kill his brother at a party. Oh no, it gets worse, right? They've intensified their father's sins. Now Absalom is even going to further break David's heart because Absalom is living out a very bad parody of his father's life. You, you can imagine Absalom. He doesn't want to be anything like his weak, 
old dad. But here Absalom flees the king's house. He runs from the wrath of the king. Does this sound familiar yet? He goes and he spends time among the Gentiles. Does it ring a bell? He's going to come back and he's going to be proclaimed king in Hebron. You know who the, whose story that is? That's David's story, right? Now, now, if Absalom is playing David in this play, who's David playing? David's playing Saul, right? David is stepping into Saul's shoes in this bad parody, and Absalom is stepping into David's shoes, but everything is upside down and turned inside out, and everything's backwards. And that's because Absalom is not trying to be holy, and he's not trying to be righteous. He just wants to be more of a man than his dad, and he ends up being just like his dad, and in a lot of ways worse. You know, cats in the cradle, right? David was a great musician. David was a greater musician than Harry Chapin, but... I searched the Psalms. He didn't write Cats in the Cradle, but he could have, right? <laughs> it's easy to sit back 3,000 years later and criticize David as, as a father. It's much more difficult to actually reckon with our own sins. And this is the painful part. That really, we see ourselves in David, don't we? As parents, as fathers and mothers. Our compulsion to ignore or deny the sins of our children when we are called to restrain their sinfulness is disobedience to God. Our laziness when it comes to discipline is disobedience to God. And it's setting up our children for failure. We're not loving them by failing to discipline them. And discipline is hard work. Discipline is so hard. You have to stop what you're doing. You have to put everything on hold. You have to get into the very unpleasant business of dealing with their sin and make sure that they understand that sin is painful. With our little ones and with our children, with our teenagers, they need to know that sin disrupts fellowship. Sin disrupts communion. Your sin makes other people miserable. You've made everybody miserable here because of your sin. You need to know that. Everybody's unhappy because you're acting up and you're being willful and you're being disobedient. We're all unhappy here. Sin disrupts, and, and you have to help them see that in an age-appropriate way. And then as you, as you administer, you follow the liturgy of discipline, you make things right and you restore order. You restore fellowship. You don't put them in a place of purgatory where we're now, you know, we've got this black this black cloud hanging over our head. We don't know if we're in fellowship or we're not in fellowship. You restore fellowship. All of our discipline ends in hugs and tickles and laughs and jokes because we want it. That's the whole point of, of discipline is to restore fellowship, not to leave things hanging the way that Tamar is left hanging and Amnon was left hanging and, and Absalom was left hanging. The point is to restore order and fellowship, but that's tough work. Does anybody say amen to that? <laughs> it's tough work, right? And there are times where you have to do it over and over and over and over and over in an hour, right? In a day, especially with younger children, right? As you're, as you're stamping out and plucking these little weeds that, that are growing, these little weeds of rebellion. Now with older teenage children, with adult children, they need to know that you're not going to stand with them in their sin. They need to understand that. That as they start to make their own decisions and they're doing their own things, you know what? You know, I, I love you. I've taught you as best I can. I pray for you every day, but I'm not going to endorse your sin. I'm not going to support it. I'm not going to stand with you in it. And maybe ask your kids, you know, if you sin, do you know, do you know that I'm standing with Jesus? I'm standing with God's law. 
And if you ask my kids, I know what answer they'll give you because I've told them. I'm not supporting your sin. I'm not standing with you in your sin. I'm standing with Jesus every single time. I'm going to stand with God's law. I'm not going to endorse or support or excuse your sin. And I'm going to do everything in my power so that you know that sin is painful and it is destructive. And you are making other people miserable by your sin. And you're putting your feet on the road to hell. Because I love you so much, I'm not going to walk down that way with you. I'm going to make it painful. I'm going to, I'm going to show you that, that you are not going to uh, thrive. And this is not blessing. This is not happiness. You're, and, and in doing that, you seek justice for the people that they've hurt. You see, if David were a faithful king, then he would have had to either exile or execute his son, essentially. I think really that's really what ought to have happened here. How, who wants that option? Would you like to do that? Say, this week, I've got to make a decision of either exiling or executing my son. How gut-wrenching would that be? But in order to stand with God and with God's law as God's king, David is king and it's his authority here, in order to stand with God's law against his son's sin, those were the two likely outcomes. I can't imagine having to face that choice, but I do pray that I would have the strength to oppose my son's sin and love him so much that I'm going to stand with Jesus against his sin. That's ultimately what we're being asked to do when it comes to our children, all of us. We're being asked to stand with Jesus against their sin. Passivity seems to be real merciful, but it's not loving. Abdication is not loving. Abdication destroys your children and it destroys other people in their path, in their wake, as they sin against other people. Let's pray. God, give us strength to stand with Jesus first against our own sin. We ask you to give us strength to stand against the sin that is, that is latent in each of us, that, that is there, that's willing to ready and to bust out in all kinds of ugly and twisted and perverse ways. Father, Give us the strength to oppose and hate our own sin and with that same strength to oppose the sin of our children. Deliver us from, from passivity when you have called us to act, when you require us to oppose their sin. Deliver us, Father, also from tyrants who take and, and oppressors who, who observe sin and, and, and passively allow sin to prosper. So, Father, deliver us in all of these ways from sin and give us strength to oppose it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.